Adam, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. All righty. Very good. And I'm going to step away from the mic just for a second to make sure that the recording is going properly. Yeah, that sounds good. Oh, if you could talk for a sec. While oh, I'm no, away, sorry. God, God a, very, a very rare request of actually being asked to speak. Normally, I'm being asked to shut up. Uh, and, but, uh, do you want me to do the, the standard thing of telling you what I had for breakfast? All right. And uh, so folks that are are just joining us, definitely. Um, we, we, is that a what? Brian Cantrell, identify yourself. That is normally... <laughs> I, Do you have your super fan on? I, I, no, that is normally, yeah, that's my 13-year-old. My 13-year-old, that is not my 13-year-old, but my 13-year-old, it, in order to troll me, uh, invented an account, B. Cantrell number one fan. Synopsis, I'm just B. Cantrell's number one fan. And then he likes the tweets that he thinks are lame, which is like the, God, it's so pernicious. It's good. Sounds like somebody's son. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> <laughs> you know that is I have to say it is the it is the worst when you see some attribute in your brood and you realize like they're getting that from watching me. Uh, it's it's even worse when you get blamed for it. I, I get blamed by yes, exactly. By my spouse. By your spouse, exactly. That's right. I yes. know. It's like or or like yeah, he said something that you would say. I'm like, "Wait a minute, but I didn't but I didn't say it. I had the <laughs> I had the prefrontal cortex that told me not to say it." Yeah, still your genetic fault. Yeah. All right, Brian Cantrell, I've asked you to be a speaker, and I'm sure that you and I have gone through. I, did he leave? He left. <laughs> he left. Did it happen? No, no, he's there. The this Twitter Spaces does not make this part easy. But th- I'm sure this person has gone through life. I mean, we've gone through life being confused with one another. This is still how my daughter spells her last name, by the way. So I, I have received mentions for you in the past, but. Uh... Haven't engaged. Wow. I, I'm i sorry. I think I'm sorry. This is really... You don't need to be sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I am sorry. My name, obviously, I mean, I feel that I have spent my life correcting the spelling of my first and last name from your name. I feel everyone wants to spell my name as your name. I, I guess I, I win then. I'm you do it. You do it. No, that's exactly the right attitude. You actually do it. Um, Brian, with an eye, I, I admire your restraint because I get confused both for the Adam Leventhal, who's a British sportscaster, and I readily reply to uh, his bank, which has the wrong email address from, for him, and to the American Hockey League. Uh, whenever people are very cranky with officiators, I always like their tweets or weigh in. And explain that our officiators, our, our referees, are as good as we pay them, and things like that. And it should be said that that you are actually holding up an American Hockey League jersey in your profile photo. Yeah, I mean it's it is it is a reasonable, I mean it's a reasonable confusion to think, I guess, that like some dude wearing a jersey speaks for the league. Um, I mean, yeah, they, y- y- you relish this confusion. I mean, only during Calder Cup season. Is, is the Calder Cup? Is that the that obviously that's the American Hockey League Cup? Yeah, it took it took me a while to learn this, but yes, and 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 the Checkers are my favorite team. Where are the Checkers from? I think I knew that was going to be that. I think they're from Nashville, but I might be confused. You know the the last I don't know if it was a, the last minor league hockey game, well, not the last the, a, a a recent of the like three minor league hockey games I can think of that I went to was at Roger Faulkner's wedding. Actually. Oh my goodness. Were you at that wedding? No, I wasn't. In, it was in Michigan, right? It was in Michigan. It was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which yeah. is, if you are ever in Grand Rapids, first of all, I definitely would recommend catching your Grand Rapids Griffins as they take the ice. The, uh, it was like in October of 2001. So it was very, like going to a minor league hockey game felt like a very patriotic act. So it was very like very post 9-11 kind of a thing. And the and then we also went to the Gerald Ford's Presidential Museum is in Grand Rapids. I don't know if has anyone been to the, the I what go ahead. 
Oh, no, go ahead. I no, please, like you go ahead. No, no, is, no you, like... you want to make some denigrating remark about Gerald Ford, and, that, and I'm here for this. That's okay. I guess I would have made I the same denigrating remark. <laughs> Sounds like your dream come true is what I was going to say. <laughs> okay. Well, oh, 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 right. I should have known that that was not a denigrating remark about Gerald Ford. That's a denigrating remark about me. That actually makes <laughs> yeah. even more sense. No, not at all. I think I think just you, you live for those moments. I, I think I remember you trying to rally the crew to go to the, to the Gerald Ford Museum. Well, and I was being very – Gen X and snarky about it in that, like, I, I it's like, I wonder how prominently they're going to feature the fact that this is our only non-elected president, right? Gerald Ford never won an election. Gerald Ford was the, the he was the Speaker of the House. He became the Vice President when Spiro Agnew was rightfully nuked from orbit and then became president when, when Nixon resigned. And I'm like, I wonder how prominently they're going to feature that. And you walk into the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Museum and you get about a foot in and inscribed in stone in letters that are like a foot high are the excerpt from his inaugural address where he says, I recognize that I'm the only person to not be elected to this office and the responsibility that he felt to the American people to represent the whole American people. It's, 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 it's amazing. That, so I came out like I went in a Gerald Ford cynic and I came out a Gerald Ford superfan. Really leaning into it. And just, just for context, Roger Faulkner, uh, his wedding in Michigan, our late colleague who invented the proc file system, among other things. Yes, the inventor of the proc file system, um, when Roger's goal was to be the oldest living hacker, and he may have succeeded. He was definitely, Roger has passed, but definitely died with his boots on. Um, and he would always say that I am at, I'm not, I'm not sure if Tom, Tom Lyon, I know was here. I'm not sure if Tom had any, I don't think Tom may have just intersected with Roger. Roger was coming out of that AT&T heritage and was at AT&T working on Unix. And as he said, I met Sun because Sun is Unix headquarters. That's what, um, Tom, did you have any, did you intersect with, with, with Roger at all? I, I don't think so. I don't think I ever met him. <laughs> you, you. I think you'd remember. <laughs> so a story that God, this is the, uh, I mean, Roger has many, there are many, many, many Roger Faulkner stories. Uh, and when Roger died, I wrote a, um, a, an obituary forum for Usenix and I convinced Usenix to make the paper that he wrote with Ron Gomes on the slash proc file system freely available. And that paper, I think, have you read that paper anytime recently, Adam? Not recently, no. But it, I, I mean, I remember years ago. It's a good paper. I mean, and it, it, Roger viewed it as he, as he said, I am on a mission from God to make programs debuggable. I thought that was, was pretty great. You know, that was definitely the zeitgeist of, of, you know, what, that I fell into when I started at Sun and, and, and was, was sort of like fortunate and unfortunate enough to be in a bunch of Roger's cold. Uh, you know, a 22-year-old wondering why some jackass had used uh, a linked list instead of an AVL tree and kind of being slapped down time and again, be like, well, we didn't have that, you know, back in the day. And, you know, five watch oh, no, enough oh, for anyone. You were wondering why he was using a linked list and not an AVL tree. Yes. Okay, yes, good. Yes, so I was going to yes. call bullshit on that story. If, oh no, he never he never used anything except for a linked list. They, he never used anything except for a linked list. They, they, yeah, a, a preferably nested linked list. I mean, the order of n squared was the way he liked to roll. <laughs> yeah, at least right. And I mean, performance is the root of all evil. Is is a Roger Faulknerism, um, and he he viewed performance optimization as I mean, he did, he was not trying to make his code passable, but he also viewed it much more important that the code be correct than the code be fast if he had to choose. Yeah. As we pointed out, like you actually don't have to choose, and this code could be correct and fast, but you've chosen to make it. <laughs> so, so he, he, so you had the temerity to to code review him into an AVL tree. Oh, not so. I, you know, I wandered into like code that Roger had abandoned years, you know, years ago. For for example, with the with the um, Solaris watch points, I remember in particular. Oh God, where he had he had done some kind of very cursory thing where there were a bunch of sharp edges, for example. So watch points, um, you know, were regions of memory where you wanted to take a trap uh, when the user program, you know, modified or read or whatever. And it was, and it was really fun stuff because it's, you know, all, all this uh, virtual memory stuff. Um, but for example, you couldn't have overlapping regions and the system wouldn't really tell you that. Uh, you would just sort of find out the hard way. Um, 
And it searched, you know, take a fault and then search this linked list of watch points. So it was fine when you're sitting at the debugger entering them by hand. But when you started having um, automation insert watch points for you, for example, when you wanted a watch point at the end of every allocated region, uh, it, it didn't work so good. So, <laughs> it did uh, not work. That was libwatchmalloc, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So libwatchmalloc just, I mean... Just was a dog after your tenth malloc. Right. It's called what? Uh, well, so watch malloc because you'll be watching every malloc as it unfolds right. in front of you. <laughs> that's right. Glacial right. pace. Uh, so yeah. So. Um, but it, I mean, so watch yeah. points are are magical, right? When they when they work, it's magical. Yeah. It's like, no. I, I, it, it, it's very very cool uh, and and very useful and very slow, even with an AVL tree, because you're you're. You're trapping and, and remapping memory and single stepping and trapping again, um, but when you need them, man, that it uh, it's it's very hard to imagine alternate mechanism to be able to say when is this memory modified and when this memory is modified, I want to stop the program or I want to take a core dump or I want to. I mean, it's just it it feels like a super. It felt like a superpower when it works. I, I, absolutely, and I think that the the thing that Roger instilled certainly in me and I think in in you know all of us, you, you know, you and Mike and the other folks interested you know, really interested in debugging was how, how this kind of debugging stacks, where once you make these layers reliable, then you start building automation on top of it, like libwatchmalloc. And that then exposes some of the shortcomings of these mechanisms you initially thought were just going to be manual. But you, you, to Roger's point, then, then there's plenty of time to optimize once you've, once you've proven that these mechanisms are, are really useful and valuable. Yeah, you know, I th- that's actually a good point, And I had not really thought of it quite that concisely that Roger made this incredible contribution about debugging infrastructure being an, an attribute of a production system. Yeah. 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 And the, um, so for those of you who have, if you've used, um, S trace, which traces, um, system calls on Linux, S trace is, um, I pretty sure that, that, that it was following in Truss's footsteps. Although Tom, maybe you have to let us know 4.x, had I'm not sure what 4.x did for this, but Trust, which was to, uh, it, it was to trace. It was originally TRSS, right, to trace system calls and signals. Um, what did 4.x use to trace system calls, Tom? I uh, I don't remember. I remember implementing an S trace thing back at Amdahl. Oh my God! But, it, it, uh, this is on Unix on their 370. Right. And is that P, was that Ptrace based? Uh, yeah. Oh, Ptrace. Such a... Talk P, about slow. And also Ptrace... So for those of you who don't know, Ptrace is, a, is, is the historic debugging interface in Unix that ultimately slash proc replaced. It's still what you'd use in Linux to debug. You use slash proc for system information not for debugging, um, and you use Ptrace for debugging. And Ptrace has a really, has a couple of fatal interface flaws. Have you ever like, dealt with Ptrace, Adam? Yeah, a bunch on Mac OS. Um, yeah, and it's, it's a huge pain in the ass. It's awful. Ptrace in particular had this idea that you should be using the wait system call to wait for Ptrace oh, events. And, oh yeah, and just like overloading it. Yeah, overloading it. Very it, strange. Yeah. It feels like doesn't it feel like there should be like one word for this in German? Of <laughs> you, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, the, like, the, the sort of misappropriation of right. mechanism in in like a seemingly clever way. Yes. But one that is ultimately a disaster. Yes. Yes. That's exactly it. What is the one <laughs> yeah, word for that? What's that German in, word, right? if those of you who are German software engineers, please hop in and tell us the <laughs> one word for this. In, in German that explains because uh, no that's exactly it and I feel yeah like... but, but but in defense there, there was like zero no form at all of interprocess communication back then okay wait a minute Tom are you actually going to defend Ptrace's use well, of wait no. <laughs> you, you may want to think carefully here you got <laughs> you, a legacy to protect the no but the, but there was some mechanism in the kernel that they they hijacked right so okay so that yeah. so that actually is interesting Tom because that is so. In that era, your argument might be that the system call space was so sacred that you couldn't, you, and you couldn't also use ioctal, I guess. You, you had to use, because the problem by using wait, wait is to wait for child processes, which 
one can argue whether they should have named it more concretely, more, more specifically. Yeah. But that is just death to overload that with P-Trace. Yeah, just basically wait for an event from somewhere. <laughs> Josh, would you like to say something about P-Trace? <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm trying not to. <laughs> there you go. Good luck. So it has, it has, it's the, the manual page. Uh, the interface, from what I recall, is documented as like specific integers that you pass to the thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, I feel like it, it predated the use of like define. <laughs> well, and it's an interesting <laughs> object lesson too, because there, it, Torvalds talks about Ptrace in like, I want to say like 2001, where people, a bunch of people are complaining about Ptrace in Linux. And he's like, look, it's just, we're too far in at this point. Like, we can't replace P-Trace. We're just going to have it forever. And you're like, man, that was like 20 years ago. Like, I bet you could have replaced it 20 years ago. Doesn't that feel like it, it, it's just an interesting reminder in terms of like, this stuff doesn't need to That's, be immutable. I mean, over the course of eight years at Giant, there were definitely times where it's like, oh, we could fix this, but it'll take years before we can actually use it because everyone's going to have to update and move past the, the flag day and a bunch of other stuff. And then, But then looking back, it's like it's been eight years now. Could have probably changed things back then. At some point, it's been eight years, then it's been 20 years, and it's been 30 years. Yeah. You can actually add a parallel improved path, even if it takes forever to get off the old thing. Like, P-Trace has the x86 of system calls. <laughs> it is. Right. The thing you have to remember is that computers are growing exponentially, so the best time to fix anything is always right now. Well, that's it. The, right. the, I mean, the best time to plant an abstraction is 20 years ago, but the second best time right. is today, right? But, but it will always, right. It, you're always, it's always worse to wait another minute. Yeah. You know, Brian, I, I feel like this is a long-coming apology because, you know, the, I, I was realizing the, the other thing that I did, the other, like, kind of a super fun site I left for, <laughs> for, at Sun that you guys carried into Joint was this emulation of P-Trace in branded zones. And so, uh, you know, just because just there are a bunch of, like, keywords there. Are you, are so, you so... trying to make Josh scream or cry? Is this, I mean, is this something, some sort of Stanford prison experiment that we're doing with Josh? No, I, I feel like if I apologize in public, then he, he can only be so are mad you, at are, me. Are you, are you saying, are you doing this in public so I won't make a scene? <laughs> That's right. That's, that's right. Well, don't you, make a, is that, look, Josh, don't make a scene, okay? Like, accept the apology. Like, he's trying to. Is that the calculus? Yes, yes, that's exactly the calculus. So, so you know, Solaris had zones, and we created the, in, in, at Sun, these, these branded zones that would pretend to be Linux. Uh, and the way we did it was, I think, that my, my joint friends will tell you, wrong. And the, no, the really. I don't think so. The real, it was amazingly oh, really, oh, well. Right, right. And the way that we emulated Ptrace was with a shadow process that would use slash proc and then do this sort of half-baked emulation of Ptrace. And then, Josh, the thing that you'll really hate me for is that... Already does. I think, I think, I think, yeah, more for, is I think we were granted a patent for this benighted... I I didn't see that one coming. Josh, I didn't know anything about that. I don't know. He's on his own on that one. Did you get a hat hat that said patented on the hat? I think I I I have a plaque even. Oh, oh. Oh, good. San San Francisco man, I guess now Alameda man, found bludgeoned with plaque. That's right. Yeah, it's the same. We've we've determined the murder weapon. (laughs) Exactly. He was actually murdered by his own patent plaque. Wow. Someone must have been half crazed. And, and, and actually, to bring it back, Brian, I think it's the application of this German word that we're looking for, which was exactly that, like this clever application of his existing mechanisms that ultimately and maybe I don't think immediately of, was a disaster. So I don't think I would hold – because with P-Trace, you're trying to do something very hard. And this is just in general very hard. We, we found over and over again when you're emulating one system on another – and Tom, I know you've got a lot of experiences on um, this too – you are having to emulate a system's – bugs <laughs> i mean i feel like as the as the one emulating the system you feel like you are thinking about the semantics of the system more than the original implementers thought about it and i, I think like it whether you're emulating x86 or you're emulating a different kind of operating system i don't know tom what do you think about that oh yeah you got to be bug for bug compatible 
And I, I feel that, like, for me personally, it was the V-Fork uh, that we, when we learned that Go was very dependent on the V-Fork semantics with respect, with respect to signal disposition, which is like V-Fork, and, I mean, V-Fork, unsafe at any speed, toxic at any quantity. Signals unsafe at most speeds, toxic in 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 many quantities, and like to take the confluence of them is unconscionable. And yet, Go somehow manages to depend on it um, to this day, um, deliberately. And it's like so you're as the system emulating this, like yeah, you got to find a way to make that work. So I don't know, Adam. That I don't bl- I don't think I, I maybe I'm just trying to service maybe, it as your therapist it's... here, but I don't think that. I mean, Josh, maybe you can use an I feel statement when you talk to Adam. <laughs> about how you felt about inheriting a, a half thought out P-trace mechanism. Use your words. That's right. That's right. I think that I feel. <laughs> that, that's the, it. Uh, that's better. That, that doesn't that feel better. The, it, no, the, um, but the, it, uh, the part that I remember being most frustrating. Was, so the reason we even cared about it was not for S-trace. If you recall, it was for Ubuntu's, uh, short-term attempt uh, oh. to be to be systemd. It was for upstart. Oh, it was for upstart. And they were using it to track or attempt to track correctly uh, process lifecycle across double fork boundaries by using ptrace to intercept all of the forks. Right. <laughs> you were already and making did, Adam feel so much better because Adam is already like, dude, I was the least of your problems. Like that is <laughs> that's, the, that's a mess. <laughs> and but so like. The emulation that we had was pretty thin and I think may have been dependent on signal delivery or something that just stopped happening in the context. And so like it, it, it was just, uh, we wouldn't do the thing that it was looking. <laughs> and so Hofstar just didn't work at all. It wasn't like it crashed. It just never got any of the information it thought it was going to get. But it's kind so of- that, turn, that turned into a lot of surgery to I- implement it. Uh, with sufficient fidelity that processes couldn't escape, right. uh, and it had to work. It had to work just like the real one. Um, and in the end, we did get on the the back of that emulation. We did get S trace to work basically correctly. I think it was. It worked so remarkably well. It worked so great. This is, I, I'm gonna get the in the show notes. We'll put the tweet of us. Uh, so a bunch of like basically non-drinkers all hoisting a beer when Josh got this working. Uh, because it required us to, to, to put all of that in the kernel. I mean, it was just, it was insane. Well, we were trying to lift, if you recall, we were trying to do stack switching to begin with. That's right. And the emulation, because our original model for LX was that the in-kernel component was basically a trampoline. It would save some registers on the user stack, a bit like signal handling, and it would just always return you back into this uh, shared library that we had secretly and mapped into the Linux process memory space every time for every system call. And so things like ptrace emulation could happen in the context of that user library. Uh, and it could make any, any native system call that it wanted and go figure out a bunch of stuff. Uh, when we moved to stack switching, we also moved to, to some system calls would be emulated entirely inside the kernel and the kernel would be involved in knowing which emulation stack to drop things onto. And it just, it, it abridged very heavily the emulation path, which made things go a lot faster, but it also meant that the, the whole of the existing Ptrace emulation, which itself made, opened a bunch of proc files and did things just wasn't going to work out. And Josh, you may want to explain why we had to do stack switching. Cause that, I mean, that itself is kind of an interesting story. That's of course go. Uh, the, yeah, it was, the, they were using the red zone. Right. right. They're using segmented stacks and we were, mm-hmm. I mean, this is why it's so hard to live as an emulator. The, because the Linux system call ABI is passed by register with no stack requirement. And our emulation was not like that. It, it was, it, you, you basically cannot, you, you can't live in, in the user level stack at all. Like you just cannot. Right. Because we, we, we would use whatever the stack was whatever your existing stack, we would put things on your stack, which is normally okay because C processes usually have abundant stacks. Uh, and the fact that we use it, you can't tell if you don't know to look because oh. we put it all back. We put it all back. After exactly. we return control. As far as you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, the and I, I remember we also had – so we would have these bugs where it's like, hey, this application works on Ubuntu and it doesn't work on LX or it worked – or even worse. Like this application used to work and now no longer works. And I remember the, one of those that was also uh, a real object lesson for me was where uh, application core dumped um, but, uh, was a regression. We upgraded the operating system, the application core dumped. And of course, all right, well, that's a query bug. What's going on? Well, it turns out it wasn't as query bug because the application was implicitly relying on phishing in its own stack and relying on a, effectively it was relying on data corruption. It was relying on the fact that this value would be zero. And on, it's like we needed to push an additional value onto the stack in order to work around one of the Intel bugs. And in order to do that, it's like, yeah, the value you're fishing is no longer zero. Now it's non-zero, and now your your application is core dumping. You're just like, oh god, it's so hard. When you're... do you remember? Do you remember what Closure Common Lisp did with the context, the M context, and oh, the U context? Yeah, right. Was they it... would copy it somewhere else. <laughs> but... Right? No, 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 no. no. Yeah, no. which is technically so legitimate, do... as it turns out. It's just that we had stashed in the stack all of this other ancillary information, the real information. So we would give it the emulated version of this information, which was about the Linux emulated so, process state so, and, so and our, our second like real native stack stuff that would happen on a signal or whatever would not come along for the ride because it didn't know that it existed. <laughs> it didn't know so, the ride so, happened. It didn't know there is a ride. So, so, I mean, these kinds of lies just don't nest. So that U context or N context are collecting register information. So if you've got some shadow copy somewhere else, yeah, and we collected really good information. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just that it's just that we also collected, you know, additional secret information well, that and, we but, would. Yeah, and this is one of the lessons and, I feel we, with, we learned with the emu- with the emulation stack. The 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 bad thing was so like we had moved the collection of that information to uh, a more secure location, <laughs> but you still <laughs> you still need to. Unfortunately, the, the part that we would put on the emulated processor stack, which by this point was separate from the emulation stack, which was somewhere else, uh, you still have to chain them all together. Like you have to pop the same number of contexts off the the emulation secret stack as you do off the native emulated thingy stack. Anyway, just it was a mess, and we did it. We think I think we did it with magic values and fishing expeditions. It was bad as a as a fallback. <laughs> Why isn't that a performance problem? For you don't want to take signals uh, at an audible frequency. I think, in, in general, um, you don't so take like, signals at all. Signals are such a yeah. If if you can avoid it, but like signals are just such CC, a... CCL at least took a lot of signals because <laughs> it was from an era I think where programs were single threaded and when stuff happened and you wanted to handle it it would be because of the signal possibly a nested signal but programs and i I, like i get the abstractions were lean but programs that use these abstractions in a load-bearing fashion uh and i I think it it highlights one of the things that we've seen a couple of times i feel in my career that magic does not layer well when you've got someone in the stack being magical they're kind of relying on people elsewhere in the stack like not being as magical. Yeah, playing by the rules. Playing by the rules. And it's like, well, why well, should I, I play by the rules? Like, you're not playing by the if, rules. If, it's like, if, yeah, but one if, of us has to play by the rules. And if we had had unlimited resources and time, right, I think that the, the final end result of LX would have been to move all of the things into the kernel. Into the kernel. So that yes. there was no yes. user space visible thing that had to happen. And, and signal handling, our signal handling occurs about half in the kernel and about half in libc you know like a lumos libc so like getting to the point where we can do emulated linux signal handling entirely in the kernel was going to be a bunch of work and we just never pulled on those threads well so i'm always curious because the i, I talked some the, you know the microsoft folks were very inspired by our work and so they like you know the wsl the wsl1 WSL one was directly inspired. Like, you know, you guys showed that like this is possible. And I felt like, man, um <laughs> do you regret following us down this path? <laughs> like, I'm sorry so, if we led you down there. Well they they so, did because they stopped. They right? stopped. Right. I know they, they realized Wait, what, what's the, what's WSL? Sorry. They the basically Windows subsystem. Windows. Yeah. The Windows subsystem for Linux. Oh, 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 oh. Which 
the name is on backwards, but it's it's like an emulation thing that lets you run unmodified Linux binaries on a Windows system in a kind of context of some sort. And I think like Folks, can I ask a yeah. question? Yeah, go for it. Uh, is it uh, what is the state of uh, running uh, Illumos on M1? The uh, on the uh, like on an ARM CPU, yeah, that would be uh, on an M, uh, like on an, on an Apple on an M1. That would be uh, that would be a go for it. That would be that, that's not um, <laughs> yeah. There's there's no 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 one is going to tell you it's impossible, but it's not. It's like, definitely it's not, not. Yeah, it's not going to happen before dinner. No, but yeah, uh, sure. Nothing happens before dinner, right? Or a lot of things can happen before dinner. But I well, guess I mean, if you had a ThinkPad, is... it could happen before dinner. <laughs> I we can get it right, but before dinner, it's just an ARM PC, isn't it? Yeah, we don't so really my do. Question we don't, is, we don't really do ARM today. Be, so my question is, there there could be different solutions to that, right? Uh, there could be like QM, QMU, or there could be just booting up an operating system. Uh, I mean, I mean, the, the, the virtual machine story on M1 is uh, like I I cannot have like a virtual box, right? Because it's M1, and uh... you, you would need a full system <clears throat> CPU emulator, and it would run very slowly. I would think. And Laura's Laura's our <laughs> resident ARM expert. She can she can weigh in. No, yeah, not the, really. The M1 is M1's really fast, and Kemu was pretty good. So you you can do an amazing stuff with pure emulation. Laura, the, the thing with the M1 is is that like it's 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 not fully standards compliant. I know I'm sending people around hissing whenever I say this, but it actually turns out the fact that Apple is kind of doing their own thing makes trying trying to boot up, you know, an operating system that is not OS X, like a, a lot of work. See also the work with for Linux to try and get what's actually merged with the Linux kernel, for example, moved in is basically just a bare skeleton. And how long it will take anything else, you know, remains to be seen. But I think there's been a lot of controversy there. So, I mean, it's certainly a labor of love, I think, to try and do it. But, yeah. Laura, can I ask you, how do you feel about, like, personally feel about M1? Is it, does M1 feel vindicating or does it feel, like, threatening to kind of the principles of ARM in terms of the openness or maybe both? I mean, I'm happy to see it going forward, but um, I also kind of have strong opinions about running um, non-Apple operating systems on the hardware. Like, <laughs> I support everyone's right to try and do so, but I think it is not a, the best use of effort to try and do this, mostly because exactly Apple has, you know, chosen to make it difficult to try and run anything, anything else. So I think you're you're fighting an uphill battle, and it's just, it just doesn't seem like it's worth it to try and do anything else. Um, Which was also true on their x86 systems. I mean... Yeah, like it, it's always just—it's always been kind of crap to run Linux or BSD or something else on on like even relatively old MacBook Airs or something like that. But what, but what if there was like a virtualization layer something? Like I don't know. Ah, uh, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to, because it's hard to get the machine really properly emulated, and I, I mean. I really, as Laura can attest, when we were starting to do Cortex-M-based development, I really, really, really wanted Kimu to work for full machine emulation. And it, it's, it's really spotty and tough. So it would be, I think an M1 emulator would be great. I think it would be hard um, to be, have a complete emulator. The thing that amazes me is AWS has a Mac OS offering for people who want to do cloud development and uh it's just a bunch of mac minis thrown together yeah i think i saw a promo video you, you, you would think if anyone could get apple to virtualize mac os it'd be aws but they i you know i don't believe that apple virtualized inside a whole lot necessarily even yeah. like well, you, you would th you would you, you would you think vmware fusion right where you can get a apple yeah but that's got to run on os 10 already Right. So maybe some longtime Apple watcher can give kind of insight into this, but it is kind of amazing that the world's most successful computer company, single computer company in terms of Apple, has really never kind of grokked or had interest in the server space. I mean, other than X1. Adam, did you have an X1? I think we had an X1. No, no. I mean, I know I was a big, like, Apple super fan back in the day, but no, I never had an X1. I, I was going to do a throwback to, like, the Chirp systems because I thought you were Oh, Chirp. Yeah, um, like the and, and their clones. Like my brother had a, a um, 
a like Power Mac clone. I can't remember the actual name of it. it was Power Computing. There it is. Uh, and then just yanked it all back uh, when when Steve Jobs showed back up. Yeah. So the Chirp was the the common hardware reference platform, right? That was. That's right. And it was like ostensibly, I think, with IBM to create this open power PC kind of <laughs> standard thing. I I think. I don't think it got very far. I mean, you, this is obviously the alley-oop for Mike Sullivan's laptop. I don't know if you're trying to take me there or not. But the <laughs> – so uh, a colleague that I worked – it was in the next office at Sun um, – was responsible for a bunch of build infrastructure. And uh, his laptop was stolen, which is very weird. This is the what is now the Facebook campus. So if you're on Facebook, you're in – MPK 17. I wish Facebook had renumbered the buildings. I just feel like it was was disrespectful for the dead. Like, you're living in the carcass. Like, can you at least, like, anyway. Um, Have you seen the sign? Oh, I know the sign. It's it's very, it's fetishizing the dead. I feel like, like, let's bury the dead. Let's not fetishize them. You can go on a pilgrimage to what feels really honestly like a graveyard in some kind of sleepy hollow thing. A graveyard that is like a Through through little trees, there's a clearing, and then you see, like, There's a body There's hanging a from a tree and like, yeah. It's, it's, day of the dead vibe as you walk around certain places. Yes. So the, our, anyway, the Mike, that's right. Uh, Mike's laptop was stolen and Mike's laptop was a, was actually a power PC laptop running Solaris two, five, one, a very ill-advised experiment because we'd done the ending this wrong. We did a little Indian port, not a big Indian port. And so we were the only little Indian power pc implementation on the planet there were only like i mean we had fewer than 20 machines that could boot solaris 251 and one of them was stolen and i would have loved to have been like what happened to that laptop if i could have like the webcam on the adventures of that laptop as the thief realizes that they have the actual most worthless laptop you could possibly steal in 1997 as they attempt to, it's like, it, it, this is the only operating system it can run. It's a terrible operating, it's an operating system for which there are no binaries other than like CDE. It's, it's, in, a, it's in small pieces at the bottom of the bay at this I, point, I assume. Yeah. But you're vindicated because years later, Open Power is Little Indian. Open Power is Little, I don't think I realized that, that Open Power is Little Indian. Yeah, to get, to get the Linux stupidity compatibility. Really? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, Brian has a talk that is uh, on YouTube that is like a gathering of a lot of old Sun folks, I think. Yes. Sounds like it. And, it, and there's a story of a laptop there. Is that the same laptop? That's got to be the same laptop, I'm sure. Are you, are you accusing me of, of retelling stories? Because I... <laughs> no, no, no. I, I wanted to get the... No, no. I think that's the same I, I found that talk really, really interesting. I, I don't know. I don't know what I found about it interesting, but I found a lot of things about it interesting. We're all living fossils talking. About don't it. accuse him of reusing stories, or we'll start hearing about the H programming language. Exactly. Hey, listen. That's first of all. That's called language H. First of all, and and I, you're gonna really regret. You, you don't. You know. You don't play with fire, Aaron. You don't. You can't just bring up language H and then walk away. The in the we were talking about um, the uh, the friendly orange glow. This great book by Brian Deere last week. And one of the characters in that goes off to NCR and works on a COBOL-like language in NCR. And I'm like, oh my God, this is a, this is language age. This person went to work on language age. So I'm gonna, I, I wanna go, yes, I wanna go hunt down some language age. I mean, it's, <laughs> sorry, I have, to, I have to just bring this up. Uh, there is also, I don't know about language age, I guess like I need to like, do a little bit of no no you don't actually no you really don't it's a it's a it's a language that you haven't heard of for a reason don't worry there's there's another language that i've heard of uh, and it's uh, the d language yes like the d language that is so i i actually looked at the d language the d trace d language and uh i ha- i don't think i've poked around that much because unfortunately there is a bunch of D trace hooks uh, in uh, Mozilla's uh, uh, Spider Monkey, but they're not maintained anymore. Yes. So that was like the closest that I had an encounter with, and I was like, okay, time to time to do some D trace, but uh, I I couldn't get that experience. But I did learn a little bit about the D language and the demo with. Uh, Diagnosing the 
uh, clunky behavior in one of the components in GTK or X11, which was delivered at Google? Uh, yes, that was the D treasury of some... Google. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I feel like the D language uh, that uh, kind of like programs D trace. Uh oh. Is that me? Or is that's that him? a cliffhanger. No, that's him. That's him. Okay. That's him. So I've upgraded my app. I, and I am, you'll notice, do you notice that we're 40 minutes in and I've not died? Impressive. It, it is impressive. And yeah. the, uh, one of the, the spaces folks DM me saying, hey, you may want to upgrade your app. So I, <laughs> so I did that. And so here we are. There you go. Good. So of course, when, 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 he, when, he, when Nima stopped, I was just like, oh my God, it's happening again. It's, I, I'm, I'm traumatized by uh i thought he was actually going to talk about it is about the time it usually happens it is about the time i, I thought he was going to talk about walter bright's d the other d the the, the the frankly the more famous d language and do you remember is... our our interaction with walter bright adam no no i don't hit uh, walter bright's d walter bright of borland and c plus fame and the d language like again like much more d lang much more i think much more famous than d trace but the our D and his D were developed in parallel and in secret. And when we made, we talked about D-Trace and D, he's like, well, this is interesting, but you're going to have to change the name of the language because I've got a language called D. And like, we're like, our language, first of all, is not Turing complete. So like, go, I mean, come on. You can't take, a, you can't take us very seriously. One, two, it's a letter of the alphabet. Like, I don't think you can copyright those. I don't think you can trick. I think you got to pick a more distinctive name if you want to have something defendable. Defensible. So plus, it's like uh, it's the one after C. Like we're both going for the same pun here, <laughs> right? So... And it's like not that funny. I mean, it's not right, <laughs> right? That not that funny of a joke. It, right? It's not that funny of a joke. Like we don't need to fight over it. We can both just right. have the same not funny joke. But D is R D. Very inspired by Auk. Yeah. Um, of course. I mean, it all comes back. It all comes back to Auk. I mean, Tom Auk must have felt like a just an absolute like blast of modernity when that happened yeah it was very cool i was i was right there that summer it was all coming together um so yeah people were doing crazy stuff with it so you were you're there with you got what weinberger and aho and kernigan all developing this together right right was it named at that point had they yeah yeah uh pretty early on I, I don't remember when. I mean, it's it's kind of like genius to use the the. I, I mean, I'm, are there other Unix commands that are named after their that have the uh, an ode to the authors in its name? I don't know. It's when you the Born shell. It's true. The Born. I guess maybe. Yeah, maybe this was like a thing. But I mean, well, but, but before it was that, the, the Born... Thompson shell, right? I mean, I guess it's not in the name of the command technically. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Born Shell because of the way it was written in Algol 68. It is not the greatest C. No. It is not the greatest C. I, I love Steve, but it's Born, but Jesus Christ, Steve. It's not Algol. Yeah. You can't do what you'd like. It's, it's wrong. What you did is wrong. For those of you who have not been in this source code, pound defined begin as open brace and pound defined end as close brace, if I recall correctly. John, oh, yeah, and, and like a oh. bunch of the rest of the language, like <laughs> yeah. What was worse than that, Tom? Well, well, he, he had all kinds of Algol six eight constructs, so the the source code was not immediately identifiable as C because it was all in like capital letters and like if and phi and then yeah. and a bunch of other stuff that see in the, the, the in the world the of problems. I mean, the, the use of the shell also has, has all those algorithms in it. In the actual language. Yeah, the if and file and all that stuff. Right. Case and ESAC, right? Right, I mean, right. Those are algorithms. Yeah, I guess I hadn't really put two and two together on that. I'm so sorry. My phone died and I just. I just lost the past five minutes of the conversation. Uh, don't worry, we, we were just waiting for you to rejoin, having a fight or flight reaction because I assumed that Twitter Spaces had actually died on me again, which it hasn't because I've upgraded the app. So I'm optimistic yeah, that's not going to die. I guess it's okay because we experienced that last week, but and it was fine. 
Uh, and the week before, and the week before. It has died every time. It is still amazing how but bad the visibility my... is on Android. If I want to know, is this app leaking memory and slowly linearly growing to its own death? That's actually kind of hard to tell on an Android. Okay, so that's not just me, because I actually have tried. It's, it is, unfortunately, with Twitter spaces, it's very hard to do anything else on your phone while you're in that Twitter space. But the, um, yeah, so Android, I, I, I wanted to look for better tools for that. It, they don't exist. Uh oh! There you I don't know. What is people's preferred H top for Android? Yeah, I've... I think we lost. Uh oh, Tom! I, we've not lost you. Have you lost me? This is. Uh, I I lost you for a minute. You're okay. breaking up. Um. I um. So sorry, Nima. You 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 took a, a five minute vacation, but I think you were you asking about the the details of you talk at Google circa. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I built a lot of. I I built a lot of context because there was this I, probably very selfish of me, but I guess it's a question that I care about a lot. Uh, I guess in terms of you know, Dtrace is like such a highly domain-specific language, right? But in terms of ergonomics and how you can sort of declaratively just say what you want and just collect data and in various different sorts of way uh i would i was feeling more comfortable in the detrace language than i was like oh is that me again so i was wondering yeah but twitter spaces knows you're trying to praise us so it's trying to cut you off i kind of admire it it's got it's got some new new filters for it uh knows you're trying to praise d okay i guess yeah yeah uh, we can hear you can you hear me now uh, so what what I was saying is that in terms of like working with working with a language that aggregates data and formats it and prints it out, I have found the entire like D-trace experience very somewhat ergonomic uh, compared to SQL or VisiCalc. But it is it surprises me that D-trace is such a domain-specific language, you know, even though it's like querying operators and aggregating operators are pretty generic, you know, like you can think of the same kind of syntax over a relational database, right? So I was uh, wondering what what went into designing that sort of like high-level layer that programs D-trace? Like who was behind it? Like was it the iterative thing, or were you inspired by SQL and gave it like a different syntax? Like what was what what went into? Not inspired by SQL, although maybe I mean, and actually in terms of Adam's personal career, Adam, I think I dare say like the SQL came later for you, right? I mean, I don't think you, I think absolutely, yeah. So the for sure, um, uh, very much inspired by Awk for sure. We were talking about Awk. I mean, definitely took great inspiration from Auk and its ability to very quickly um, put things together. And then in terms of the aggregating um, operations, you know, honestly, that just came out of using it. And I, I do feel like this is one thing that is like really important for anything to be ergonomic. I feel it's creators really need to make use of it. And we used Dtrace a lot to debug lots and lots of things. I mean, we were the biggest users of Dtrace, Adam, I dare say. I mean, correct me if yeah, no, I- I, I to- totally agree with that, Brian, and I think that, and, and if you agree with this, but I don't think any of us was really a programming languages nerd no. of any description. No. And uh, and one of the things that was very stark for me as I look as some of the Dtrace clones and sort of uh, offshoots emerged is how much more structured some of the language was and how much more boilerplate they required and how much more fussy they were about about a lot of things that the D language is not that fussy about, mostly to its benefit, to its ergonomic benefit, but occasionally just to like total misfortune. Well, but, but to your point, Brian, it was it was all based on like us exploring some phenomenon, something being kind of a pain in the ass or impossible, and then venting something that was easy to use. And it was all about that actual use. And so we were optimizing constantly for our own use. And I think it was like awk in that regard. And what I didn't realize at the time, and Adam, do you remember like when we're going in from our architectural review board, they, the, one of the comments was, you know, um, honestly, this reminds us a lot of awk. And mm-hmm. we, we were like, that is high praise. Thank you so much. Right. I, you know, they, they, these, I, 
Peter Weinberger is an idol. Uh, and then you realize like, oh, wait a minute, that's not intended as praise. That was actually intended <laughs> as like damnation because awk from a PL perspective, I think is viewed somewhat pejoratively. I mean, if you're a PL person, like if you're, correct me if that's, if that's an incorrect inference, but I think awk is viewed somewhat pejoratively and it shouldn't be because it's so pragmatic. Um, and it's, it is so easy to, to stitch things together. And it obviously, and um, Tom, I would love to know, you know, you were there in that, in, in that summer, I mean, you get the sense that Awk was being used to by its creators to do things. Oh yeah, it's basically, it's kind of like how, what's the most powerful one-liner you can crank out with Awk? Right. Yeah. yeah, and that was that was exactly what what I, I, you know, we were up to with these rights for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's so funny to think about that exact same kind of echo, you know. Because Tom, that's the summer of '77, right? And so, and we're in, we're like, God, actually, you can see what's amazing, Adam, is it's only like, I know it's crazy. It's only like, it's only like 23 or four years later that we're doing that. <laughs> I know, I know. Like the, 1977 the, the, is almost closer to when we were developing D-Trace than when we were developing D-Trace is to now. That's not quite true, the, but that's close. That's right. That is insane. Um, but it is, it, it's, it's this interesting kind of echo. And, you know, the, there was a, um, remember the Sun CTO actually, Greg Papadopoulos, we, we like, Despite the fact that, despite NEA's view on oxide, um, sorry, Greg. Um, the um, but you know he had the, this line that he, that he felt that any just to your point about about the domain specific language that the biggest advances in computer science had a language that went with them, which I think is actually really interesting, right? Because you see that in CUDA with NVIDIA and the GPGPU. I mean, certainly we see it where things we're excited about, like blue spec. I mean, obviously I think Rust is a big deal, but I think it's like, I'm not a PL person, but it's really hard for me to deny that that language is really stitched in closely with our biggest innovations um, in computing systems, not even, not just computer science. It's just too damn hard to figure out how, how to use something without the language to guide you. Yeah, there's it, it is it's something like that. It's where it's like you need that that, that domain specificity. It does it, it guides you, Tom. That's that's um, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. But but there's an interesting lesson there in terms of the the survivor bias bias, uh, and and that statement, which is, um, you know, not every every new language has that kind of durable, uh, like persistent effect. Um, is anyone hearing this very strange buzzing? Um, anyway, just, um, no, that, but, but that's just me. No, that's the microchip that Josh planted in your brain that he's oh, activating. I was just going to say, we're just, I hear you but, talking. But, I mean. but, right, same thing. But, um, but like the, the languages do persist, that do persist, like have this, this long shadow. Whereas, but having a new language can mean your technology is very hard to adopt. It, 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 actually, this is also one of the things that, and I know Adam, you and I both love proc macros. I don't know how, like Laura, you, Laura, Josh, do you, do you, the, you Laura, I know you, the, you, you've got that, you've got to have the same love of of proc. I mean, I just feel like proc macros in Rust are going to allow for a new level of domain specificity that's also rigorous. Am I? Yeah, I mean, it's like you're going to be able to do amazing. Uh, crimes and other things, <laughs> I think, at the same time, right? I mean, it's like some, some, depending, really depends on <laughs> your point of view when you pick up that tool, I think. So, diagnosing, uh, I'm, I'm not a Rust person, but I had like a brief experience with Rust, but diagnosing error messages with the way macros expand is somewhat difficult. Ooh. And I, I, I sort of, under, I, I get the power of, uh, Macros, I think that's right? every language with macros, though. No, it is amazing yeah, in Rust. Rust I, okay, look, it's amazing. It's amazing. We're about to be very on brand. Rust makes like a heavy. Rust makes a heavy use of macro in a way that I've really never seen in any other language. And this, the thing is, uh, macros in Rust expand into things that the that the compiler can handle really well. Like I don't know the details, right? All, all the way to like how the structs are layered in memory and whatever. But uh, uh, 
that kind of macro system is really needed across all compiled languages. Like C++ needs that a lot. Like if you ask any like GLSL folks, like anybody who's like interested in like staged mental programming, a lot of a lot of GPU folks may 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 relate to that. And they may appreciate Rust's uh, macro system. And there are like a, there are a bunch of C plus plus efforts uh, by say like Nvidia folks who try to do like const expert. That's like future of const expert in C plus plus. Like, I don't necessarily like follow that. Uh, uh, um, the, the kind of the use cases that I program doesn't involve those kind of things, but. Uh, the, so it's like meta programming is like generally is like a very difficult language. It is, problem. but so the the error messages yeah. you can get in because I think historically you're onto like a, a big historical problem, namely when you got when you got errors in that macro expansion, how do you? Well, I I personally got super confused. Like my experience was uh, with the, this library called Salsa, which I needed it for. So you be uh, things between build systems and so on, but it, it it's some, sort of like a you be uh you sorry you'd be interested to take it apart because the it, it, I can tell you that the Rust from the proc macro from the Rust language perspective gives macro authors incredible power to generate ridiculously good error messages. I mean, error messages that are I mean, honestly, I found it eye popping. Adam, it sounds like you had the same a similar kind of experience. Absolutely. I mean, I think on one hand, I totally agree with the, the statement that you can create macros that are completely undebuggable, where the error message that you get will be indecipherable compared with what you had typed into your program. On the other hand, the, the latitude that you have to know what, what span, like what, what section of code the user typed in uh, was responsible for a particular input value, to, know, to be able to correlate with the compiler and say, please underline this statement and yeah. print out the following value. Morally, we call them proc macros, but it, it may be better to think of them as compiler plugins, really. Hmm. Right. I didn't even know like, the talk went, went into that in Rust because, uh, yeah, I didn't know like people have taught about like error handling at the macro, oh, like, oh, macro level. They, it is, yeah. it's amazing. So I, I guess like I'm in for a great. Yeah, it is. You're, effect, you're effectively writing a Rust program that has access to the, the, the pause tree and the token stream, right? I mean, and, and can then control the compiler's behavior and its output. And then on top wow. of that, can when it has bad input, can and it was it sounds like Adam and I had the same reaction to the same thing, namely your ability to underline within a line the particular span that actually caused you to not be able to continue processing, and it's just like crazy how what and, we can do. And then on, and then on top of that, the, oh, and on top of that, the, more the Rust compiler will also, you know, present to the user this is what the macro told me what was wrong, but tell you what. I don't necessarily know this guy, so I'm going to tell you what I think is wrong too. So even as a macro author, you can't override the compiler. You can only amend, to, like try to try to specify in greater detail what's going on. But the compiler is going to tell the user its honest thoughts as well. And I think it, it, so. Is it fair to say that Rust thinks the quality of life of a macro user is more important than the quality of life of a macro writer? I think it does not want to pick between its children, but um, it, it, it thinks that both are very important. And in particular, it thinks that the debuggability of macros all around are very important. It thinks it's important to be able – and I can tell you from a – having done things that were much less powerful, but as powerful as CPP could do, the CPP processor, where you've got none of this. And you know, we made use of the preprocessor very heavily, and I've made use of the preprocessor heavily in lots of things. And you've got no net, and what you can do is uh, it's completely, completely hygiene-free. Yeah, well. it, it is. High, it, it is so non-hygienic that I kid you not, I did not know how to spell hygienic before Rust's macros. I didn't. There's another I in there. It, like it feels like there should only be one I, but there's another I hiding out in there. I'm like, oh well, there you go. That's the filth I've been living in. I don't know how to spell Hyg hygienic. Hyg Hygiene? <laughs> well, look. Um, <laughs> but the the fact that you've got this incredibly powerful facility, and I agree, Josh, like it needs a different name. Plugins sounds too, I don't know, sounds too like... Well, because Rust also has a slightly more hygienic version of 
the CPRU processes as right. well in, in terms of the, the macro rules macros. The macro rules macros, and they are great. And you're like, wow, what is everyone talking about with proc macros? I think it's like, I view it as like a compiler channel programs. You, you've got this like little program wow. that is going to be executed. I, and it's the, like when you first start experimenting with it, you're like, wow, is this like legal? Is this, I mean, I feel, you know, this is a language that has made such a big deal about being safe and that's going to, wow, it just allows me to be right on the brainstem and I get to do whatever I want. I mean, not whatever I want. But it, 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 it did, reading about it for the first time, it was, it felt like the forbidden fruit. It, it is like, the forbidden fruit. It really is. And, and I think in the same way, we have, we have some colleagues who, uh, who feel like it, it, it should be more forbidden than perhaps exactly. we're, we're treating it. That's, because it, yeah. it, I mean, it does mean like when you're writing Algo 68 as your DSL in your Rust program, it all sort of just works. Presents a, a formatting challenge for, for one thing. It's like you've created a different language other than Rust. So how do I even indent that now inside my broader Rust program? You know, like, Well, and, and actually, I think it's a Hacker News story today about effectively writing Python within Rust about with a serious... And I think we're going to see more and more of this. I think we are going to see more and yeah, I mean, more... The Python, there's a, a Java proc macro right. experience. Is there on this one? Uh, surely, or, and it would be—it's it, something that would be highly attainable. And I think it's actually—I think it's great because it allows. We we're just talking about how important it is to have language innovation. To, to just to Tom's earlier point about like showing you where to go, and to add DSL kind of specificity on top of Rust, I think it's going to be incredibly powerful. I think it, it, it's it's going to be really all, neat. All, all of my subsequent libraries are going to be uh, accessible only through TCL. You know, I, I, I knew you were going to try to punish me with, with, I, I have written more so sad, than right. I have in my entire career. <laughs> it's time to bring back intercal. I, I feel like we are bringing back intercal with me and some of the tickle, because all of the, the EDA world is still in tickle. Oh yeah. Oh, and, and so it's so F sad because uh, Jonathan, sorry, I just uh, have to mention this and then like uh, take myself off from this because uh, Jonathan Turner was joined this space who is like a person who knows a lot about Rust and ergonomics of Rust and various features of Rust. But then they, they joined this space, but then they left so early. But I feel like they could have had like a great uh, response and guidance about like all the points we brought up about Macros in Rust or Look, I, I, just or it goes to it goes to show when you talk about Ptrace people. Like I know that's it. I want the analytics. I want to be able to demonstrate beyond yeah. a shadow of a doubt that it was Vfork. I think that did it. I think v viewership started out at it started out at 13 million households, but then like <laughs> right. you know uh, after the Ptrace discussion, no one came back after the commercial. Break, so <laughs> I, was... I, I think we've been very restrained for the past yeah. few weeks to not just have a completely complete Rust love in, uh, and and I'm sure I'm proud of it. Trace conversation we have. I got the answers I wanted. So, I'm, so I'm the gonna, feature request I'm there is time series data on who's listening. I, I've got lots of feature requests. If we're talking Twitter Spaces, I want to like I have a, like a lot of analytics, and I want to be able to see the V fork effect um, as everyone like hangs up on V fork. Right, uh, Francesca, you're trying to get in here. See me pronounce it correctly. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, sure. Uh, whoops oopsie I'll, I was just trying to compliment the thing about D-Trace that we liked it so much I mean Plan 9 and 9 front that we implemented it not f fully for sure because we're missing like stack captures and s some of the backtrace <clears throat> backtrace cap capturing features but it's so nice and like there's people that don't like the syntax but if you can explain it in less than less than a page like it it's useful you know I, i'm obviously did plan, did plan nine contain orc i can i, I, mean, yeah. I know that there were things like make were re remade with less vowels and stuff obviously it contained the the first doc implementation i think Compiled to C, obviously. Okay. Compiled to. Um, so I think we're we are at about, and we're actually a little over an hour. We are 
unaccustomed to being able to go through the entire hour without <laughs> having to like reboot and get like chased out of where we were and have to get into a new space, but it all works. So Hey, kudos to the Twitter space team. It's getting better. I think. Yeah. Um, but I, I can still touch my phone. It's not melting my fingers. And, and I, I know we, we said this last week, but I think we mean it this week um, that we are going to uh, want to talk about Silicon Cowboys. Uh, we'll kick off with Silicon Cowboys next week. With the, I know that Steve Tuck, our boss, wants to join for that discussion and uh, couldn't make it today. He's working on a board deck, which is definitely much more important. Um, but the, uh, Steve wants to join us so we can talk about Silicon Cowboys and Compaq, which is a super interesting kickoff. So we will do that next week, I promise. Was that the Netflix documentary or was that a book? It is a, there's a book called Open by Rod Canyon, which is also worth reading. Um, and there is the, uh, it's, I believe it is on Netflix. So the, the documentary can be found on Netflix. I think I've seen that one. It's good. It's good. It's worth watching, worth watching with the fam too. It's a, uh, it, it's, it's a good watch for sure. A lot of it still rings true. And they thought they had a bug for bug compatibility issue too. Yeah, they definitely did. Yeah. They definitely did. Adam, any parting thoughts? Uh, really looking forward to next week because Silicon Cowboys is awesome and touches on exactly as Tom was saying, these kinds of like systems problems of, uh, of, of making magic layer and uh, making your system look like somebody else's. All right. Hey, thanks so much, everyone. Um, really looking forward to next week, but really, we're, we're having a blast doing this. Hopefully you are too. Um, and hopefully we'll see you next week. Take thanks care. Everyone. See you next week. Bye. Yep. Draw. Goodbye.